Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will talk about sex and genitals. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things... What is peak arousal, and how long does it take to get there? In the world of sex advice, there's a major focus on cisgender, heterosexual couples. We are told and sold that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, and this creates a big market for sex advice focusing on differences. No wonder mixed sex partners might feel like they don't understand how to please the alien being they are having sex with. One bit of sex advice I've seen floating around the internet, particularly on Instagram, is that it takes cisgender women 20 minutes to get fully aroused. This is presented as a contrast to cisgender men, who I guess are faster than that? I never see any man stats presented, but it's implied that men need to slow down to ensure their female partner gets to her fully aroused state. Fully aroused for what exactly? I'm not sure. Recently, a clinician friend who had learned about the 20-minute guideline asked me if it was true, and off the top of my head, from lab-based genital research that I was aware of, I thought there's no difference in time to peak genital arousal. I did want to actually dig into the research, though, particularly to try to figure out where this 20-minute stat came from. Is there any evidence it's true? In this episode, are there gender-slash-sex differences when it comes to time to arousal? why the question itself doesn't make sense, and I'll offer some sex tips of my own. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. As I started investigating the timing to arousal, I had so many questions. Most notably, what does it even mean to be fully aroused? Is it specifically the physical aspects of arousal? Is it the psychological aspects? Is it a mixture of both? When thinking about peak arousal, many people might automatically think orgasm, i.e. how long does it take a person to get to orgasm? But people with vulvas can orgasm without being fully aroused. When desired, a vibrator can potentially knock one out in 30 seconds or less for many people. When that happens, it's likely our bodies and our brains didn't get to a state of peak arousal. Additionally, people with penises can have orgasms without being fully erect. So if we're talking about genital arousal, then clearly peak arousal isn't necessary for orgasm. But then that leads me to the question is, if we are talking about being fully physically aroused, what body parts indicate that? Is it penile erection, testicular retraction or swelling, clitoral erection, vaginal lubrication, pelvic tension, all of the above? If we're talking about psychological arousal, there really isn't an easy way to measure that. I mean, likely each individual knows when they are fully psychologically aroused, but it can be hard to measure that in any meaningful way. Being fully psychologically aroused usually means being very turned on mentally and fully present in the sexual moment. But how do you tease it apart from the physical aspects? There is a feedback loop between the psychological and the physical that can't easily be separated. I decided to start with the physical side of things because that's the easiest to actually quantify. I knew my first stop had to be the 1966 book by Masters and Johnson called Human Sexual Response. 
You may know of Masters and Johnson from the fictionalized TV show about them called Masters of Sex. If you aren't familiar with them, William Masters and Virginia Johnson were researchers who began their work on sexual response in the mid-20th century. They assessed as many physiological aspects of sexual response as possible, and by their own report, they measured over 10,000 arousal and orgasm responses in their laboratory by the time their book was published. They measured heart rate, breathing rate, blood pressure, and genital responses. They assessed nipple erections, skin color changes, and vaginal, cervical, and testicular movement. I thought if anyone could answer a question about physical arousal, they could. I was wrong. I haven't read the book in over a decade, so I was surprised to find they did not report a time to peak arousal for their participants. They did, however, describe what it looked like. In their research, Masters and Johnson divide sexual response into what they call the human sexual response cycle. This cycle, which is actually more linear than cyclic, includes four phases. In this model, arousal is divided into two phases. The first is called excitement. This phase includes many physical changes, but specific to the genitals involves lubrication of the vaginal barrel, as they call it, an increase in blood flow to the genital region, which stays there, a phenomenon called vasocongestion, and vasocongestion results in darkening of the vaginal walls and the labia minora. The excitement phase also includes the lengthening of the vagina and shifting of the uterus to make more space near the cervix. Although they didn't report time to fully aroused, Masters and Johnson did report that it took about 10 to 30 seconds for the vaginal walls to become lubricated once sexual stimulation began. They never actually define what sexual stimulation means, but I assume it's any sexually related physical contact either with the self or with a partner. I do think it's important to emphasize here that lubrication is the first sign of arousal, not an indicator of being fully aroused. Of course, lubrication can and likely will increase as someone becomes more aroused. For penises, the excitement phase involves becoming erect and the pelvic region generally increasing in blood flow and vasocongestion. Scrotums become thicker and tenser, and testes start to lift up towards the body. The second arousal phase is called plateau. And this is what Masters and Johnson would describe as being fully aroused. So this is when you've gone through the excitement phase and you're at peak arousal, and a lot of people kind of hang out at this peak arousal zone. So during this phase, the labia minora are fully engorged, and at least in the almost exclusively white participants studied by Masters and Johnson, are deeply red or purple in hue. In this phase, the visible parts of the clitoris retract under the clitoral hood, and the lower third of the vagina becomes dramatically engorged. During the plateau phase, the coronal ridge, which is the ridge that separates the head from the shaft of the penis, becomes more pronounced, and the head of the penis darkens in color. Testes get bigger and go even closer into the body. There's also the release of some fluid from the cowper's gland, which is what we usually refer to as precum. Stage three in this cycle is orgasm, and stage four is resolution, which is when the body returns to its pre-excitement state. The only info I could find about time to being fully aroused in Masters and Johnson's book was a brief reference to when the labia minora become fully engorged and the color has changed. They say, quote, a similarly responding male has long since achieved full penile erection and quite possibly a moderate degree of elevation of at least one testicle, unquote. 
So this clarifies that erection can occur more quickly than the vulva becomes fully aroused, but it also indicates that an erection doesn't mean the penis haver is fully aroused either, since other parts of the body, like the testes, haven't reached their fully aroused state. I included a lot of detail about what Masters and Johnson measured in their studies to show how complex it is to define fully aroused, since it involves so many parts of the body. And I didn't even talk about the breathing, nipples, or other non-genital aspects. I also want to be clear that the phases I described were based on a very limited sample of people and don't apply to everyone or to every experience of sexual response. Masters and Johnson's research has received a lot of criticism over the years. For one, their sample was very limited, mostly to middle to upper class white people. Second, they only included women in their sample who had male-like response patterns. So if a woman wasn't able to get aroused and have an orgasm in a laboratory setting, she could not be in the study. That's a very specific population of women now, let alone in 1960. There are many other problems with how they did their research, but it is still the most comprehensive study of the physiology of response that has ever occurred. I think that's why we're still referencing it 50 years later. So what about research since Masters and Johnson? Lots of studies have measured genital arousal in the lab, but a lot of this research focuses only on one sex. Additionally, a lot of the research also shows people short erotic videos of only two to five minutes, and so is measuring their arousal in small snippets. There have been a few studies that look at the response times to peak arousal of penises and vaginas in the same study, and have included erotic videos lasting for 10 to 15 minutes. But these studies tend to use just one form of measurement, as compared to Masters and Johnson, who assessed so many things. The most common type of research uses vaginal photoplethysmography to assess vasocongestion in the vagina, and penile plethysmography, which measures circumference of the penis. This is also a proxy for vasocongestion in the penis. Vaginas reach peak response quite quickly when measured with a photoplethysmograph. In only 30 seconds to a couple of minutes, people tend to hit their maximum. Penises take a bit longer, but it's still around two to five minutes. These studies show pretty consistently that penises and vaginas get to peak vasocongestion in the lab pretty darn quickly, usually in five minutes or less. Of course, the level of arousal that they're getting to is only from watching erotic videos and not having any genital contact at all, so we don't know if this is their true maximum arousal. A major issue with this research, though, is that the penis and vagina are not analogous. The clitoris and the penis are much more similar in terms of physiology. Most of the clitoris is inside the body, which makes it hard to measure, and there are almost no studies that measure clitoral arousal or compare it to penile arousal. One alternative that is more comparable across participants is thermography, which measures genital arousal using temperature. In these studies, a person reclines slightly and spread their legs so that a thermal imaging camera can take their genital temperature. In studies that directly compare time to peak arousal while measuring temperature of the genitals, there are no differences in time to arousal measures. Depending on the study, the time to peak arousal, for any genitals, can range from 7 to 12 minutes. Temperature also seems to better correspond with self-reported psychological arousal, so it might be a better measure, particularly for people with vulvas. Something important to keep in mind here is that all of these studies are done in highly artificial lab settings. 
Masters and Johnson had people come into the lab and masturbate or have sex, but the modern research labs all involve watching a video and not even touching yourself. In a lab, there's also no pressure to perform. You just need to sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy the erotic video. So in terms of assessing peak arousal, we know in this context devoid of any physical stimulation that there doesn't seem to be much difference in time to arousal. And if anything, women are a bit faster if we're talking about vaginas. So thinking about the fact that we can't really measure arousal in real life situations, and the fact that Masters and Johnson, who were obsessed with measuring all things physiological, did not report any time-related numbers about arousal, reminded me of the importance of context. There can be so much variability in sexual experiences, even with the same partner, even with yourself, that it doesn't really make sense to report on an average time for anyone to get fully aroused. Think about your own sexual experiences, both solo or with someone else. Do you respond the same way all the time? Maybe if you're doing the same thing, but even then, external, non-sexual factors can affect it. Sexual arousal is so contextual and psychological. So let's delve into those aspects. It's commonly said that the most important sex organ is your brain, and I could not agree more. In order to get aroused, your brain needs to be in a place where it is receptive to arousing stimuli. There are just so, so, so many contextual and psychological factors that go into getting aroused. I won't be able to cover them all here, but I created a list of my top four things to think about when it comes to how long it takes to become fully aroused. These examples are all focused on partnered sex specifically. Number one, who is initiating the sexual activity? Sometimes there are times and places where sex is assumed to be happening by the parties involved, but in other cases, someone needs to be the sex initiator. If there are, say, 10 steps on the way to peak psychological arousal, the person who's initiating is already likely at a three or higher in their arousal journey by the time they initiate. To initiate sex, we likely have been thinking about it already, possibly imagining what we want to happen and imagining how it might feel. This builds anticipation, which is great for arousal. If the other person in this sex journey has been focused on, say, spreadsheets and budgeting for the last two hours, they are probably at a zero on our stepladder of arousal. The person who has not been thinking about sex needs time to shift from wherever their brain was into sexual arousal mode. This shifting of gears is easy for some people, but it can be challenging for others. Also, the speed of going from zero to the initiator's level of arousal will vary from person to person. Number two, your individual arousal responsivity. The dual control model of sexual response states that our ability to become aroused is controlled by two different systems in our body, an excitatory system and an inhibitory one. In her book, Come As You Are, sex educator and author Emily Nagoski uses a car analogy to describe these systems. So you can think of them as your sexual brake, so that's the inhibitor, and your accelerator, that's the excitatory system. The systems are independent, meaning you can be high in both, low in both, medium in both, high in one, low in the other, and vice versa. Someone who's high in sexual excitation is someone who's aroused quickly and easily. Someone who's high in sexual inhibition easily hits the brakes on sexual arousal when distracted or worried or interrupted. 
If someone has a sensitive accelerator and brake, they might be someone who's easily aroused when any sort of sexual stimuli or sexual invitation comes their way. The minute the sexual hint crosses their path, they're ready to hop in bed and get it on. But having a sensitive brake also means that if they think the neighbors can hear, or if they're worried about pregnancy or STIs, or really any sort of distraction, it'll put the brakes on their arousal. The level of inhibition and excitation is an individual difference that we all have, and it's influenced by many factors, biological, social, and psychological. And this can absolutely affect how fast someone gets aroused. Number three, the context for sex. If you have been flirting with someone all night, or if you're on a date with your sweetie, or if you've scheduled your sex and been anticipating it all day, you are likely gonna get aroused more quickly. Similar to my point about who's initiating, the context leading up to sex can get you started and a few steps up the arousal scale before you even are with another person. My favorite description of this is from sex coach Serena Haynes, who talks about kind of idling your sex drive all day. Um, So keeping yourself like at a one or a two, just kind of low idle. The context for great sex usually starts well before any actual sex. It starts with flirting, sexting, your partner brushing up against you in a sensual way before you leave for work, compliments from your lover, the list goes on. In some cases, you may have been low-level aroused for hours before any sex happens, so it might take like one minute of physical contact to get you to maximum arousal. Conversely, if you crawl into bed after a long day, after not connecting with your partner much, and you're tired, Arousal will likely take longer than if you're very excited to have sex. If you're worried about a big presentation coming up tomorrow at work, it's likely going to take longer to get aroused. I'm sure you can come up with a ton of contexts where you are not primed for arousal. To create a more arousing context when one or both people is not feeling like their head is in the sex game, it can be useful to slowly ease into it through kissing and teasing or maybe a massage. You can read erotic stories or watch erotic videos, and this can help create the anticipation and increase arousal. Novelty is also a big contributor to arousal. Whether that is having sex with a new partner or doing something new with a long-term partner, adding novelty can increase arousal and likely speed up the arousal process if that's what you're looking for. Number four, your turn-ons. This is context-related, but more specific to individual desires. If your biggest turn-on is being spanked, and you're with someone who's very gentle in bed, it's probably going to take you a long time to get to peak arousal. If you want your partner to talk dirty to you, and they don't feel comfortable doing that, it's probably going to take you a long time to get to peak arousal. If you get most aroused using specific kinds of roleplay, and that isn't available to you, it's probably going to take a while for you to get to peak arousal. You get my point. Sex therapist and researcher Peggy Kleinplatz studies what makes great sex, and one of the things she talks about is having sex worth wanting. If the sex you're having doesn't involve the things that turn you on, it makes sense then that arousal would take longer because you're not as into the sex. I believe that everyone has specific things that really do it for them sexually. When those aspects are present during sex, it's very likely to increase both the speed and intensity of arousal. When we talk about sex differences in desire and arousal, it's important to ask, is the sex available to women in heterosexual relationships sex worth wanting? 
All of these contextual and psychological factors really lead me to believe that it doesn't make sense to put a number on how long it takes someone to get fully aroused because of all this variability, even within one person. I might be wrong, and maybe there is a minimum amount of time needed, but I think it would be really hard to assess because of the many reasons I listed above. I also want to clarify that I've been talking as though faster arousal is better, and that's certainly not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to get at is that arousal timing is going to vary depending on what you're doing, where you are, who you are. So, in all of my Googling and research database searching, I never did find the source of the 20-minute rule. If you know where this came from, please reach out to me and let me know. I'm going to put a call out on Instagram to see if I can crowdsource the answer. But I also think that even if I could find the source, it doesn't really matter because it's kind of meaningless. I'm going to say, based on evidence, there isn't a sex difference in how long it takes someone to get to maximum arousal. I think context and individual differences are much more important than someone's sex or gender. I think the reason that the message from sex educators on the internet is to slow down heterosexual sex is because it's so male-centric. The typical script for heterosex is a bit of kissing and maybe some groping and then going straight to penis and vagina sex. This, on average, prioritizes penis pleasure because the penis continues to get stimulation, and the clitoris, for many people, is not getting stimulated. To counter this, it's helpful for people to have conversations with the people they're having sex with about what turns them on and what they need for their arousal. Of course, talking about sex isn't straightforward or easy for many people. It can require vulnerability and it can feel awkward. There's a lot of shame tied up in talking about sex. I often wonder if that's why we educate using blanket statements. This is a way of helping people not have to talk about their specific needs and desires. We can point to something that says, see, women need 20 minutes of stimulation to get aroused, even if we know that there's a specific thing that would help get us the most aroused. This is where sex coaches and therapists come in handy to help with sexual communication. That's all for this episode. If you have feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.